Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Pattern Recognition, a show that connects the dots that lead to good business decision making. I'm your host, John Hu, growth equity investor at Norwest Venture Partners and former investment banker at Goldman Sachs. So software is eating the world and every company out there, whether they're a retailer or a manufacturer, is now being forced to become a technology company. And with that shift towards automation comes an increased demand for coding talent. But if you as a job candidate didn't, let's say, have the opportunity to study CS in a college setting, how exactly do you go about bridging the coding skills gap? Well, one way to do so is via studying through online course platforms like Code Academy. So that is why I'm very excited to announce Zach Sims, the CEO and co-founder of Code Academy, as today's podcast guest. Zach himself started his career at multiple successfully exited startups like GroupMe and Drop.io prior to co-founding Code Academy in 2011. And since graduating from Y Combinator, Code Academy has helped over 25 million people learn how to code. So it's really no surprise to me that Zach and his team have raised from individuals like Richard Branson and Alexis Ohanian, as well as top VCs like Kleiner Perkins and Union Square Ventures. So in today's episode, Zach and I dive into the nuances of running a freemium consumer subscription, and we do that through the lens of Code Academy's mission to educate the world. We'll also dig into the levers and initiatives Zach and his team have used to increase user retention, as well as the business's entry into B2B partnerships. Additionally, Zach shares his perspective on consciously hiring and building a culture-first team. So why don't we get started? Hey, Zach, how's it going? It is going well. Uh, Excited to be on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for taking some time. Well, why don't we start off with a little bit about your background and how you came to found Code Academy? I started Code Academy seven years ago at this point. I was an undergrad at Columbia and kind of looked around at my junior year in college and basically discovered that everyone I was in college with was spending $200,000 over four years on an education that wouldn't really teach them the skills they would need to find jobs. And I realized lots of students in debt, I'd be really challenging for them to get a return on investment on their education. And so I chatted with my co-founder, Ryan, and the two of us decided we should try to find a way of teaching people meaningful skills that could help them find real jobs and get a return on their investment. And so at the time, uh, I was teaching myself programming, and Ryan was teaching programming to some other folks. And so the two of us realized that computer science was probably the most important skill that people could learn in the 21st century and the the easiest skill for people to get an ROI on. And as a consequence, we decided that that's what we'd start teaching. So took a whole slew of different approaches early on to figuring out exactly what we should teach and how we should teach it, eventually applied to a combinator in Silicon Valley. And then got in and kind of really pursued starting from the absolute basics. I was teaching myself Python and JavaScript at the time. And so we decided to start with JavaScript. And I think the initial thought was maybe there's a way for us to teach people important technology skills that they'll immediately be able to apply and to do so in a way that's kind of fun and exciting. And I think, you know, I was really patient zero. And as much as I was really the first person we were designing for was me as an originally non-technical person who then could become technical, hopefully, and use those skills in my job. Yeah. Back in the day when I was an undergrad studying CS, I was primarily taught in Java, which, as you know, isn't the most applicable in today's world. 
So I remember finding Code Academy and learning Python through Code Academy, and I know a ton of my peers did the same. So I'm curious, could you divulge a metric that could give the audience a sense of scale for the business and its impact? Totally. So at this point, there's more than 25 million people around the world that have taken Code Academy courses. And, you know, that, that ranges from people that are learning a new skill in order to get a better job, people like you that were learning while they're in school, all the way through people that are learning to become full-time software engineers. It's really cool nowadays to see businesses at scale that are doing well financially while also empowering others in a way that I would argue much of our higher ed system has failed to do. But on the flip side of not having a higher ed system enforce some sort of rigor or structure is that I would expect you oftentimes deal with very early churns. I mean, even myself, I deal with this with online courses where I get really pumped up to learn a new skill. Maybe let's say it was a New Year's resolution. And just like you start every calendar year thinking you're going to go to the gym and get a 12 pack, the realities of daily life take their toll. So how exactly has Code Academy solved the problem of keeping customers retained and then engaged on the platform? Yeah, we spend a lot of time thinking about this. As you pointed out, I think, you know, the original thesis for Code Academy was we'd put the greatest education that we could online for free. And then after that, we'd be able to have people kind of self-study and get jobs. Eventually, what we discovered is what you've discussed, which is basically the importance of helping our learners stay focused and motivated. And so there's a whole slew of different features that we've launched to that end. I would say most recently, the biggest initiative and kind of effort we've undertaken is focus on our mobile app, which gives people the ability to kind of continue everything they're learning on the desktop on the go. And so the hope is, you know, they'll learn while they're at their computer and then they'll go catch the subway or walk to work or something like that and be able to continue that learning and kind of keep things fresh. And then hopefully as many touch points as possible will help them continue to learn. And I think that's somewhat of a different approach from a lot of our competitors or other folks in the space that use mobile mostly as a solo experience. I think for us, it's a companion. And so we're really trying to design it so that people use the mobile app in tandem with the desktop and that they both kind of self-reinforce each other. That's great. And I think it hits the efficiency angle that so many of us crave, where I can imagine myself getting on the train, popping in a podcast, and then opening up the Code Academy app to brush up on my engineering skills. Now, I do think it's worth bifurcating between the difficulty of building a highly successful consumer application and the entirely different challenge of building a successful business on top of that. So could you talk a little bit more about Code Academy's current monetization model? Totally. So we've pursued a couple different business models since first launching the company. Today, the vast majority of our learners pay for a product called Code Academy Pro. Code Academy Pro is a $40 a month product that gives learners access to a bunch of additional curriculum. So full paths that teach them things like computer science or data science, and also gives them access to what we call paths, which are different tracks of courses that are strung together in order for people to understand kind of how all the bigger pieces fit. So if you want to become a data scientist, we tell you exactly which courses to take when in your trajectory to make sure you're on the right pathway. And Pro also includes a bunch of other exclusive content. We have an exclusive community for our learners that they join as well, and people get extra additional access to our mobile app. So Pro gives people kind of the real full experience of learning on Code Academy through community and extracurriculum. Got it. So 
people should more or less think about Code Academy as a freemium business, kind of in the same way that, let's say, Spotify has a free tier and then you convert to a premium tier in the same way that Dropbox more or less has that with limited storage. Is that correct? Absolutely, yeah. I think we still maintain a really robust free product and you know the company actually in recent months has spent nearly nothing on marketing and just kind of grown purely organically. And we're, we're really, really excited about that. That's awesome. And then with that freemium model, I think what a lot of people are fixated on is upping your conversion rate. So increasing the percentage of free users who convert to that premium tier. What are some specific levers you've rolled out in order to increase that rate? We spent a lot of time on this over the course of the last year or so and really messing around with the ability for learners to try our product was something that was really, really big for us. So now every learner that signs up for the free version of Codecademy gets a one-week free trial to Codecademy Pro. So we've opted in for kind of a no-card upfront trial that people actually get to use Codecademy Pro for seven days. And oftentimes they don't want to lose that access. And so they end up paying for the product. And I think that for us, moving from an opt-in model where you say, you know, I want to try Codecademy Pro to an opt-out model where everyone gets to try it up front uh, has really proven great for us. I think a lot of our learners really appreciate the courses uh, that they get access to as part of Pro and they want to keep them. So hearing you say that makes me think about customer lifetime value, where if my only mission is to study Python and then I finish your course, then I realistically have no further need for Code Academy and will then churn off. Yep. So I would assume then in order to keep customers retained, you're constantly looking at new modules and courses to keep people interested, just given how dynamic the software engineering industry is today. Could you talk a little bit more about how you think about the course catalog and how you keep your most productive and enthusiastic users retained? I think for us, it's one part of it, as you're suggesting, is about curriculum. I think fortunately, you know, software development is a space that moves so quickly that people need to really consistently be up-leveling their skills. So you might learn JavaScript today, but there could be a new framework that comes up a month, two months from now, that's really important for people to learn to stay on top of things and, and really be eminently employable. And so we think that being kind of a continuing part of Codecademy is really good for most learners because they'll need to keep their skills sharp over time. So one component of it is definitely curriculum, and we add tons of new courses all the time. The second key component is the community. And so we have a lot of people that are part of our pro community. They help each other out. They're getting jobs for each other. They are starting companies together. They're building products and reviewing each other's products. And I think that's another thing that we really see people get a lot of value from pro. And the last thing is that review. I think oftentimes what will happen is people will take, whether it's a MOOC or a class in person or a Code Academy course or something like that, and they'll start to forget a lot of the content they've learned. And so one of the things that we've tried to do with Pro is really keep review top of mind. So you're consistently kind of implementing a lot of the things that you're learning on a daily basis just to make sure that knowledge stays fresh and you're able to use it in a professional context. You mentioned MOOCs there, and that actually brings up a broader question I have for you about EdTech where in the mid to late 2000s, we saw this rise of MOOCs or these massively open online courses that struggled to live up to the hype that they brought. And in part, my theory is because they were direct to consumer. So over the past few years, instead, we've seen a number of highly successful B2B enterprise-focused ed tech companies, say like a plural site, do really well. So how exactly do you guys think about corporate partnerships and an enterprise offering? 
Definitely. You know, we do work with a number of companies. Previously, we've also created courses with companies. So, you know, a classic example for us would be working with IBM to create courses on Watson or working with Amazon to create courses on Alexa. So we've both created courses with companies. And at the same time, we have also sold into companies who are training their employees through Codecademy as well. So I think, as you mentioned, there's kind of a really robust market for people that are learning at their companies. And we hope to solve problems for that market in addition to solving the problems for the consumer market as well. And how do you think about balancing those two cultures and those two models where one sales motion is an enterprise sales motion, right? And, and likely you need some sort of sales team for that. And the other sales motion is that mass user acquisition via the internet, widely distributed model. I mean, how do you balance both? How do you fund both properly? How does one even start to think about that? I think it's definitely a work in progress, to be honest. And, you know, for us, it's been a real focus on that consumer product because it grows organically. And I would say that our enterprise product is relatively similar. It's the consumer product just sold in volume. And so today, I, I don't think we do a really great job of balancing between consumer and enterprise because we're very, very consumer focused. I expect over time, as we continue to grow on the consumer side, that we'll be able to start investing a lot more in the enterprise side of things and start to face that challenge that you bring up a lot more of how do you balance which resources go into which product. But today, the products are so similar that there isn't really a fight for resources quite yet. Yeah, I'll be excited to see that transition because anecdotally speaking, with these sorts of B2C native platforms, you can often make the enterprise sale once you have critical mass on the consumer side. And what I mean by that is, let's say 30 users signed up at some large Fortune 500 company with their business email. You can go to the business's CTO or their chief people officer and say, hey, look, all of your employees are already using the service. Why don't you just pay for an enterprise-wide offering for everyone? But shifting more towards the granularities of the business, what are some KPIs and metrics you use to gauge the health of the company? Yeah, so we track net promoter score, and I think we look pretty closely at that. We also have a lot of metrics that we track across our curriculum. So, you know, whether that's the number of correct exercises or incorrect exercises. There's a lot of different metrics there that we're trying to make sure we use to make sure that our curriculum is top notch. And then I think the being a subscription business, the most logical thing for us to track is kind of active subscribers, right? And so we oftentimes are looking at the number of people that are upgrading to pro and the people that are staying retained on pro, hoping that those people are getting a lot of meaningful value out of the product. Got it. And then obviously there's some more kind of niche metrics with regards to the particular features. So, you know, are people taking X course or are they participating in the community that kind of trickle down further into the organization? And when you think about the ultimate vision for Code Academy and what is that for you? I think really what we're trying to do is to connect people to economic opportunity. And so I think one way of doing that is what we're doing today, which is helping people learn the skills they need to upgrade their careers. And so that's predominantly how we see Codecademy today. But really over the long run, we want to make sure that we are giving people multiple avenues to really lead better lives by learning. And so technology and programming is kind of one of those skills. And you know, the first step in upgrading your career is learning, but there are plenty of other steps after that. So I think for us, the focus is when going from a place where you're learning programming to a place where you're learning a wide variety of skills that can help you upgrade your career and then actually helping people upgrade their careers over time as well. Great. 
So shifting to the second part of the conversation, which is focused on the title of this podcast, Pattern Recognition, are there any consistent patterns that you see across successful freemium applications? I think you know building a really great consumer product, I know it sounds pretty lame, but I think that's really been the marketing engine for us. And we're really lucky that that's continued to be the case. When we launched, and we had a lot of people ask us what it was that you know, that helped us get so many users so quickly. And the honest answer to that question is really just we built a great product. And we're lucky, you know, kind of the classic, if you build it, they will came true in our case. And it definitely does not come true in every case. So I think for us, we've really focused on an incredible product and kind of bolting, you know, marketing on later. And I think we're fortunate now that we've hired a really great VP of marketing to lead us on the marketing side. But to date, really all the growth has come because we've built a great consumer product. So let's hone in on that. What are the specific aspects of Code Academy's product that make it the best in the market? Totally. I think the big thing for us has, has really always been interactivity. And so I think we were one of the companies that really pioneered an interactive, engaging learning environment. And I think a lot of what happens on most other learning platforms is video. And we've never really been a fan of video. We believe that the best learning experience is focused around learning by doing. And so for us, you know, we really continue to iterate on that while other people have moved into things like slides or, you know, more developed video for us. It's if we can't provide a way for learners to learn by actually implementing what they're supposed to learn, we think that's problematic. And so that's probably the biggest differentiator for us. And on a more personal level, are there any mental models or patterns that you apply in your own decision making? One of the things that I found to be really good around here is a real emphasis on writing. Uh, I think, you know, for people to write their thoughts out really encourages clarity of thought. And so I think that's one of the things that we have been putting a big emphasis on. And I think that is how I do a lot of my thinking is, you know, spending some time alone, writing out what I think about something and trying to really come up with a unique framework that takes into account, you know, what the business could be and isn't just kind of gut-based decision-making, but really kind of tries to rationalize it out. And oftentimes we'll try to take those decisions to the management team, kind of have them play both sides and have a good productive argument at the management team level. Yeah, as much as we code and sit in front of a computer all day, there's just nothing like writing out your thoughts or journaling to collect yourself. Yeah, exactly. I found one of the things this year that has been a real level up for me has been actually spending a lot more time writing. And I think originally I typed and obviously everyone does email all the time. But I think for me, what I've really focused on is writing in a journal with a pen and, and paper. And I found that being away from my computer is actually super helpful and really lets you do some deep thinking. Yeah, it's really nice to just turn off all of the Slack notifications and email pings and then just sit in a quiet room and reflect with a journal, right? Yeah. <laughs> Since we're on the topic of paper, are there any books you've read recently that have changed your perspective? Totally. I think there's a couple of them. I think one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot recently is, is our people team and growing our people team. So I read a great book a little bit earlier this year called Talent Wins. Um, it's written by the CEO of McKinsey. It's kind of about you know really building a strong culture and recruiting great folks. And I think oftentimes the people function at companies can be an afterthought. And so I think one of the things that we're trying to be really conscious about is building meaningful culture here where you know we're very conscious of the values that we're looking for in people, you know, making sure that we're keeping the bar high for hiring and doing so not just by making that a responsibility for everybody, 
but also by hiring a great people team. And so, you know, now I'm looking for someone to run our people team and kind of keeping in mind a lot of the lessons from that book, I think have been pretty important in that process. And when you look specifically for people that you think fit the best in Codecasting's culture and its vision, I mean, what are some specific qualities that you would boil that down to? I think we have a whole list of cultural values and then a list of bars or values. I think one of the things that's really important for us is persistence and kind of understanding that the process of working at a startup is, you know, a long one, right? People, uh, you have good days, you have bad days. And I think one of the most important things is that people really balance that out. And, you know, they understand that accomplishing anything great requires a really long time. And so I think we usually look for people who have stuck with some things for long periods and for people that have shown, despite setbacks in their way, the ability to kind of bounce back and stay focused and, you know, really try to accomplish something meaningful. But how do you ascertain that in a 30-minute interview? (laughs) Definitely difficult. (laughs) Definitely difficult. I think for us, it's oftentimes in asking people for examples like that, you know, what's the most adversity you face in your personal or professional life? And then how did you respond to that? And I think, you know, oftentimes people encounter challenges in their professional life and their response is to quit a job or to move on. But really what we're looking for is the person who said, you know, maybe I had a difficult boss, but I solved the problem. Or, you know, the company was really in a dangerous period and I stepped up to lead a function or something like that. So I think we're really looking for people that think out of the, outside of the box to solve problems. Got it. That's great. And then last question I have for you here is, who is a business leader out there who you look up to and why? Yeah, I think one of my favorite management books of all time is High Output Management. And I think, you know, Andy Grove, every time I have a question about you know, how I should be running something here, I kind of go back to High Output Management. And so I think, you know, one of my favorite things about that book is the preface where he basically writes in the mid 90s, you know, hey, I wrote uh, how put management in the early 80s. And a number of things have changed, like no longer, you know, is there inter office mail, um, we now have email. And obviously, since then, so many things have changed, you know, there's email, obviously, there's slack, and there's all kinds of different technologies and remote work. But I think fundamentally, a lot of the basics behind management and building solid, successful businesses, you know, haven't changed. So I think I've delved into his brain, so to speak, enough times that I think, you know, Andy Grove is a really, really great business leader to look up to. Well, Zach, that wraps up the time we have here today. I really appreciate it. Awesome, John. Thank you so much for having me. Once again, a big thank you to Zach for joining us today. If you've at all been looking for the right inspiration to learn how to code and build the next Facebook, then I strongly encourage you to check out one of Code Academy's free and intuitive coding courses. In the meantime, if you enjoyed the show, I'd love if you gave a quick rating and review as well as sent any feedback or guest recommendations my way. You can also check out show notes and more on the podcast website at patternrecognitionpod.com and reach me on Twitter at John Heasy, that's J-O-H-N-H-E-E-Z-Y or on Instagram at John Jihu, that's J-O-H-N-G-H-U. So thank you all for tuning in and I'll talk to you next week. Bye.